This is the Team UOA Podcast, your interactive listening experience with the stories, tips, tactics, and tools for your ultimate outdoor adventures. Alrighty, now I got it recording. How are we doing today? Good, man. How are you? Oh, it's been a day already. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's been busy. It's not a bad thing. No, for sure. Makes the time go by fast. Yeah. What do you got going on today? Well, not much anything. Working on uh, this listing. I just popped up in Lynn County and then taking it easy, working on some contracts at home. There you go. Now, what what do you do with um, land listing? So I work a little bit with Midwest Land Group doing uh, mainly, I try to do, I mean, they do everything. Like as a brokerage, we do, man, accounts is everything you can think of. But a lot of land, I try to do a lot of um, mainly just hunting properties and really, you know, high end, either either really good whitetail properties that have a lot of potential or really good whitetail properties that are already set up or, you know, I mean, just really, I try to focus my business in the recreational side of stuff because I've done, you know, land management for so long that uh, it just kind of goes hand in hand with the buying and selling of it, you know, acquiring it and getting it. So um, I don't do a ton. I do a lot of business with them or I do a lot of business like, pretty much from may may through august um i'll put a lot of effort into that side of the business and then um you know come in the fall and obviously spring and then all predator and stuff i'm really really focused on content creation i still do a little bit of because some of it trickles over you know so i'm still handling some some sales and some land stuff uh kind of in the middle of all that but um yeah, just another another source of income, man. <laughs> Heck yeah. So how did you get into the outdoor industry? You talked a little bit that you um creating content, you know, during the, the hunting seasons in the winter. Um mm-hmm. but how did you get into the outdoor industry? So I started like, oh man, probably thirteen years ago, um, just kind of filming and back then like there wasn't really outdoor television. Um, I mean, it was just kind of starting, but it was not near as big as it is now. And, and, uh, so really I just started like filming hunts. I always loved to hunt. I mean, since I was a little kid, I used to go out and, and even, you know, shoot squirrels and just be out in the woods by myself, uh, all the time when I was a kid. And it was just something that was like super addicting to me and something that always came first. And, and, uh, I kind of just took that passion and kind of self-taught myself, I guess, on, on videography, you know, and we started filming back when we were filming on, on many discs or many, um, cassette tapes mm-hmm. and, you know, started filming then. And I gathered a bunch of stuff up and burned it all to a CD. And I went to the Iowa deer classic and, uh, met a guy named Andy Wikers who was starting a show called campfire stories. And, uh, kind of sent him our stuff and he was like, Oh, I love it. You know, uh, start, you know, using the content. So really just started that way, you know, and almost like what a pro staff role was. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I got into the business, you know, I started kind of liking it more and, and, 
kind of really started enjoying the production side of stuff. Um, and, you know, kind of grew with the industry. I grew, you know, I was with Campfire for probably four years. Um, as I grew with them, I kind of started understanding the business side of stuff and the marketing side of stuff. And then I left from there and went to Full Draw Adventures, um, was on Sportsman Channel at that time. And really started, you know, for them, I started working a lot more of the business side of stuff and working sponsors and um, trying to pick up the marketing side of stuff. And, and I kind of understood quickly that that was where um, if you wanted to make a living in it, you know, at least a full time living in it, that's that's where it's at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, a lot of guys build their brand in this industry around their face and their personality I was never really interested in any of that. Um, I was just more interested in doing what I love for a living. And, you know, if that meant me behind the camera as opposed to me in front of the camera, I was fine with it. So mm-hmm. really, you know, started just building my brand off of off of content and trying to get out and hunt as much as possible, put myself in the best situations for opportunities, and really, you know, started focusing on high-end, you know, cinematography and, and photography and and, um, just, I mean, it just kept growing from there, you know, and I kept kind of relationships and built relationships with marketing, marketing directors and companies and got to where I really started just producing, um, content, you know, just for them, for commercials, for, uh, print, print ads, you know, anything like that, that they would need. And, you know, as that, I mean, as all that grew and snowballed and, and started, you know, getting bigger and bigger, you know, social media really hit the scene and became, you know, kind of, uh, kind of a big deal, you know, to start doing stuff with social. So started with social stuff and jumped on Instagram when it started and started throwing content there and my account grew and, you know, people liked the content and it kind of just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And then, you know, we're jumping to like a TikTok now, I on TikTok <laughs> when it started, you know, kind of got there early and, and kind of changed the the game on TikTok was where, you know, it was a, a dancing app <laughs> that, that yeah. everybody was doing. And there wasn't, there wasn't much, uh, wasn't much hunting content on there. And I started kind of building a profile on there with, you know, kind of hunting content with taking kind of a mix of, of what TikTok is as an app and, putting it to my world, you know what I mean? And kind of yep. opening the door to that stuff. And that's kind of how that started growing. And then, you know, heck now we're doing, you know, I'm doing it full time and been doing it full time for four years and, and really, you know, created some cool commercials there on TV. And I obviously still produce hunts and we produce hunts uh, all year long through predator turkey and, and deer and, and uh, just keep grinding and trying to, trying to, Stay on top, you know, if we can. Heck yeah. So did you have a pretty good season this last year? I you know, my whitetail season wasn't great. I uh I killed a deer I killed a mule deer in South Dakota or in uh, Nebraska early. And then I hunted a really big deer in Missouri that I've have uh three years of history on and he uh he gave me the slip pretty good. I was actually hunting two deer in Missouri and and uh my biggest one kind of gave me the slip about mm, late October. So I switched gears and went and started hunting another deer. That was another big deer I had on the farm. That I had some history with and gosh, we hunted him all through the, but I had him the week before our rifle season opened. I had him uh, six different times within a hundred yards and could not get him killed. 
And oh, uh, it's funny because, yeah, on the last time I had the encounter with him, I was like, man, this is just not my deer. You know, he's just not <laughs> like, he's just not like, he's got somebody else's name on him, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, opening day of rifle, my neighbor kills him. So, oh, and you know, it's just a oh. typical thing. And I, you know, a lot of guys get upset with that stuff. I, I wasn't at all. I mean, I had my chances. I, I knew the deer grew the deer and, and he just wasn't my deer, man. Everybody, you know, every deer has a, a guy's name on it. And mm-hmm. it may be some guy you don't think is worthy of it or whatever, but in the day that's his deer. And, you know, it may do the dumbest thing and blunder out in the wide open. And, you know, you've been hunting him for two weeks and haven't seen him, but this is part of it. It's how it happens. Oh, yeah. and it's all, you know, it's all part of the story and go on. And I, uh, I ended up killing a great deer though. I had a, actually a rarity on our farms. Usually, Usually I've got pretty good tabs on every deer that's around, um, at least using the farm. And this deer was an absolute wild card. I never, I'd never uh, seen him. I'd never had any pictures of him through five years on the farm. Um, I just, I actually was still hunting the big deer because I didn't know he had been killed yet. And this was the Monday. Our season opened on a Saturday. And I didn't know he was dead and I went in just hunting him and this other big eight that, uh, he's actually a nine, but, uh, mainframe eight that just was, you know, had 13 and a half inch G twos and 11 and a half inch threes and just a beast of a deer, you know, was just locked down with a doe. Some one of our does brought him back home and, yeah. and he was in the bed area locked down with her. So I ended up killing him, which was super cool. I always loved to kill a bonus deer cause that means I get to stretch the story out with some other deer for another year. So, Absolutely. um, yeah, that was it. I mean, I focused on like Kansas. I didn't hunt Kansas. I got my son, a youth tag of a 13 year old and he had never hunted out of state. So I took him to Kansas and he killed a great deer, um, early in the archery season. And, uh, then he killed a great deer here in Missouri. Um, a four year old cold buck we were trying to get killed. So he got him killed with a rifle and, so we got all that done, and then um, that was really about it, though, for the year for, for whitetails, which is, I mean, that's about part. It seems like you have a really good year, and then you have a mediocre year the next year or a bad year, and then it'll bounce back. But mm-hmm. pretty excited about, you know, what uh, what this fall is going to bring. We've got some really good deer that made it, and it should be a pretty good pretty good fall, hopefully. Absolutely. Um, when you were talking about uh, your um... – Oh shoot! Now I lost my train of thought. I have to edit that out. <laughs> um, when you were talking about like with your um keeping tabs on deer, I've listened to some other podcasts that you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, on your kind of your processes through that, and I kind of want to just to briefly touch on kind of what you do because you you're trying to keep track of these deer all year long, correct? Yeah, absolutely. As much as I can. I mean, they usually, I usually lose them obviously from when they drop horns till I don't like, I'll take all my cameras right now are put out for turkeys, um, just to get some turkey content and stuff like that. And a lot of them, I don't even have the whole, my whole, all my cameras out. I've just got, you know, a handful out, but, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll start, you know, May 20th is usually the point that I, in Missouri that I start running cameras and feed again. And, uh, yeah, I try to follow them all the way through. The reason I say May 20th for me, it's because usually our bucks are at their eye guards are about done or at least started. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they're right above them. They haven't thrown their G2s yet, but it's when I can f- start to identify them. So I can, you know, I can very, I can start to kind of match them up. And there's a lot of, a lot of my file process will go, you know, May to June will really just be like new buck one, new buck two, new buck five, new buck six, new, you know, for each farm. And then yep. I kind of have to, puzzle, you know, go back in, you know, late June, early July, when they've got decent amount of antler growth that I can really tell it's that deer. I go back and I try to piece them to when that new buck was to see if I can get them in that May file. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we try to, I try to keep tabs on them as much as I can. Uh, I've kind of set myself up to where. I set a goal for myself, I guess, for every deer to where I can kill him. I want to be able to kill him at any time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, I've, you know, obviously whitetails change. Whitetails, especially here, I mean, they, they change their whole range. They'll change their habits. They'll change all that stuff. But I always try to really get to know the deer, really get to know the personality of the deer. Um, you know, a lot of guys will, a lot of guys will say, you know, hey, if you want to kill a big buck, you got to do it this way. That's usually hogwash i mean every buck's different every buck has a different personality you know a lot of the big deer have a personality trait that keeps them alive whether it be they don't want to move a lot uh, they don't like to move a lot in the daylight you know what i mean they don't tolerate pressure there's something in their personality trait that keeps that deer alive he's not smarter than other deer he just has a different personality trait that allows him to bypass a lot of hunters and it can either be a deer that roams a lot you know, and you just can't get on, you just can't pattern, or it can be mm. a deer that stays, you know, a homebody that just a reclusive, what I would call like a reclusive homebody, which mm. is a deer that doesn't leave a, you know, a very small area and he's reclusive. He doesn't like the day walk unless he's got, you know, a front coming or a, a weather change that would really get him up on his feet. Um, those are some of the hardest to do, but they're also some of the easiest to kill if you if you hunt that deer a specific way and that's kind of what i try to learn about my deer and and, you know try to figure out their personalities and and, you know how much they'll tolerate and and all that stuff is is all goes into it you know for for when i do go to hunt one Mm -hmm. well that makes sense um so when you're when you're taking your cameras and you're putting them out midsummer, you're running them on an, on like mineral, correct? Yeah, for the most part, mineral or feed, um, either one or both. Sometimes even um, for the most part, though, yeah, that's where they go. And then, do you transition um, to like scrapes in the September time frame, or do you keep them on feed? No. So what I'll usually do is um, minerals really big in Missouri. Um, through the summer months, obviously feeds really big in Missouri through summer months for keeping track of them. But as mm-hmm. soon as scrapes start, you know, late September, I'll usually take cameras and make sure I have cameras on scrapes that are that are in, on the farm mm-hmm. um, that are easy to access. I guess I should say. Um, I don't really. I'm a big like low pressure guy. I don't really want to pressure my deer at all, and. I don't, uh, a lot of guys think they can get away with a lot more than they, they can, in my opinion, but mm-hmm. I don't really mess with them much. So everything's kind of on edges. Um, I can drive my truck to everything. When I enter my farm, I drive my truck and do the same thing every time I do it. So if I've got 15 cameras on a farm, I'm going to check those cameras in the same 
I guess, uh, I don't know what my wording is here, but I'm going to check them in the same, you know, I'm going to check this one, then this one, then this one, then this one. I'm going to do that the same the every same time. Routine. Pretty yeah, the same routine. Yeah, the same routine. Correct. Because a thing that a lot of people don't realize are deer are a lot like cattle or livestock where mm-hmm. you can almost change, you, you can get them used to pattern you and you can really depict what they do as long as you stay very consistent. So I always say you want to stay predictable until it's time to kill them. And that's, that's really, you know, if you can get them on a predictable um, habit forming kind of routine, you can find that you can, you know, say I'm going to run a camera on a scrape and that deer knows there's human interaction on that edge on that scrape. So he's going to show up 15 minutes after dark. And if mm-hmm. I get a deer that's regularly doing that, all I do is bounce a stand back 50 yards in the timber, the direction he's coming into and hunt that. Mm-hmm. And ultimately you find that that deer is getting on his feet. He's staging, waiting to come out there because he knows there's some type of dangers, right? There's human interaction out there. Yeah. So he's going to stage on it, but you, you surprise him with the stand. You don't, you know what I mean? You don't want to, a lot of guys are like, Oh, I want to move a camera back in there to make sure, you know, he's coming from here. He's coming from here. Well, when you do that, you just move that intrusion even closer Deeper to him. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So it's a, it's a lot about being predictable um, to the point to where, you, you know, you pick your battles because, in hunting, you really only have to get it right once. Yeah, um, so there's true. no reason to try. You know what I mean? There's no reason to try to get it right all the time. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you just got to do it right once. Doesn't matter. You don't need to know he's on his feet back there. Take a chance. You know, mm-hmm. bump the stand back and hunt it. That's that's kind of the way we we run things around the soil. So when you're running these minerals and feed and um, and running cameras, are you going in? <laughs> you know like rubber boots scented up like are you doing any of that are you no you're just Mm -hmm. going in normally absolutely yeah i mean like i said it's no it's it's a false narrative Mm -hmm. there's probably gonna be some outdoor companies that hate this but there's a false narrative in there that scent sprays and and you know keeping your stuff in ziploc bags and getting in there you know you're gonna it gives you this false sense of I guess not being detected. Mm. And ultimately for me, it's about I, when I go to my farm and I walk up to the edge of my timber, I know as far as I walk into that timber, I'm going to leave a scent trail. So with yeah. knowing that it's automatically kind of pre programmed in my brain that I'm going to do that to a minimum. But if you think that you can spray down and you can wear rubber boots and they're not going to smell you, you're going to automatically take more of a chance and you're going to walk in, you're going to intrude way more of an area. Mm. And it's just, it ends up, I've tried it. And I, the only reason I say this is because I've tried that and it's never worked ever. Mm. I've always been picked off. Now I may have deer smell it and not freak out, but it's because that deer's personality allows that to, he doesn't care. Right. Yeah. He's going to deal right. with a little bit more pressure. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the deer that doesn't deal with the pressure, he's going to go out of there and he's going to change. So for me, if I can, you know, if I can kind of appeal to the, the cagiest personality mm-hmm. then the ones that are more, relaxed, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I, yeah, I've, I mean, I've heard people talk about that stuff and I, I thought I had heard one with a podcast with you talking about that. That's why I kind of wanted to touch on that. And, um 
I think you talked about kind of like the habits with that too. Um, mm-hmm. With, with deer becoming used to that smell and associating it with good things as far as Absolutely. like mineral or feed. Yep. And- yeah. I mean, we always, I always try to do something positive that is related to my interaction on the farm. So it's kind of like if you, you, I mean, you deal with cattle, you understand it. If you go out and you say you're in a field and I know, you know, driving around the field, at least here, drive around the pasture. If you drive by a ditch, there's going to be deer laying in it and they're going to lay there as you drive by. They don't mm-hmm. care. And those deer, you'll see them all the time. But if you start shooting out the window at them or stopping and jumping them and all, they're not going to do that. Yeah. And it's, it's the same, it's the same thing just on the other end of it to where essentially if I show up now, I mean, I've got videos, there's a video on YouTube about it. Like I was feeding big time late season and the deer were literally, I was writing an email and the deer literally came up and were two feet from my truck while it was idling after I dumped <laughs> the pile. I had 20 like, some deer come out. Yeah, they're like, hey, come on, dude. So, I mean, but they'd seen me do that for the last month and a half, and they understood. They understood that it was, it was, you know, it's not a bad thing. Like, hey, he's here to feed, and it's the same thing with cows. You know, there's you can pull up into a cattle pasture and honk your horn, and the cows are going to come running. I mean, it's just if you incline, if you teach way, you know, if that's how you feed your cows, they're going to do the same thing, and deer will do the same thing. But a lot of hunters aren't disciplined enough, I guess, to do that. Um, I'm kind of cursed with an OCD brain to where it's very easy for me to do the same thing every time. And, you know, I have, um, uh, you know, a camera guy, obviously. So, you you know, a double-edged sword to where I have to produce content while I do the typical things on the farm that everybody else does for whitetails. And there's a lot of times that we will not shoot things at certain sites like certain feed sites right like mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't but my camera guy get out of the truck like just stand the truck mm-hmm. no, i'm not gonna do it because i've done it before and we've got out and i've had a different scent of a different person there and the buck that had been regularly daylighting all of a sudden went nocturnal on me for two weeks you know it's just mm. it's just every personality can be different when you introduce something new to them they don't like so Ultimately, for me, it's about just being very, um, you know, in a routine and trying to reduce your pressure and trying to be as predictable as possible in the off season. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the easiest thing for them because you don't really want to surprise them. Makes sense. I like I like touching on that and kind of learning your process on that. Um, like I said, like listening to your stuff before, I knew it was something that uh, was going to be interesting to hear about. And- we talk so yeah. much about deer. I'm I'm really gonna have uh, withdrawals from deer season. <laughs> yeah, are it's you getting about putting, that time? Yeah, are you putting mineral out now? Yeah. You- so what I do? Yeah, I'll run. I run mineral licks all year, but I usually I use the the big time uh, nitro mineral now, and it it's really good and it's lasting a little bit longer. It seems like on the know for the deer but i i kind of my like everybody's going to be different for you know population didn't um, um especially like now so we can't feed technically in missouri you can't feed while you hunt right mm-hmm. so you have to, all the feed has to be gone for 10 days but we have turkey season coming up so we what we do is we don't feed at all on the entire farm if we're going to hunt it 
mm-hmm. um, just to be safe. There's really no, you know, I know Nebraska has like a distance, you know, you have to be 200 yards from it or whatever. Like Missouri doesn't really have a distance. It's kind of a gray area. It just says an area can't be baited. Mm-hmm. So we always just side on you know, caution and, and just don't feed the whole farm if we're going to hunt it. So like they get shut off from feed um, March, usually March 15th. And then I shut my feet off completely and they won't get feet again until May 20th. Now in that meantime, I've got mineral out because mineral Mm -hmm. isn't considered food in Missouri. So that's when I'll really make sure, you know, usually into March when I shut my feet off, I make sure all my mineral licks have at least five to 10 pounds, get at least five to 10 pounds of mineral put in them. Um, And then I will hit them again, usually the beginning of July and run through August. And then I hit them right when season starts, which is like September 15th here in Missouri, I'll hit them again through that. And then I usually don't touch them again until, um, you know, late, late, you know, I just kind of keep an eye on them, but usually don't touch them again until January, February timeframe. Um, just because the deer obviously through the rut and, really that that fall season they get a lot of nutrition out of acorns and there's a lot of food there's abundance of food mm-hmm. that uh gives them a lot of nutrition so they really kind of slack off from mineral um from just really pounding it, i guess i should say so and we aren't running like i'll pull all my cameras off mineral when when like uh halloween usually you know i mean when the okay. rut really starts kicking in I pull all my cameras off, off mineral for the most part. I mean, I may leave one or two on some really big licks that, you know, you'll go to find if you've got a really big leg, usually you'll pick up a, at it. So it's the case that I'm kind of getting to, you know, that's the world right there out of that camera. So I'm going to leave it. But a lot of other ones that are just on mineral licks that don't have any scrapes around them. I'll usually not even, I'll usually pull a camera off of that to put it on a funnel or to put it on a scrape somewhere else, you know. That makes sense. Uh, I definitely want to kind of um, deep jump into that more this year. Um, I know last year I had I had tried to stick with the habitual patterns with um, running cameras, and mm-hmm. um, I I am definitely an impatient person when it comes to certain <laughs> stuff like that, and yeah, so I yeah. think I. I kind of, I don't know if I'd say wreck spots by, you know, by some of my trail camera um, checking or whatever, but I mm-hmm. definitely think that there was too much intrusion um, right. too deep. And I noticed, well, out here, we don't have a lot of timber. It's mm-hmm. a lot of, it's a lot of open. And then where there is trees, it's coolies. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the routes that I had where I was checking cameras and running mineral and um, uh, we run Big and J and okay. like where, where we're running all that stuff, I was bumping deer almost every time driving with a ranger. Yeah. And so I just kind of had to redo stuff and, and that's looking at maps for this year. I'm looking at ways that I can kind of run the outsides of everything, and um, mm-hmm. but it depends on the year last year was or the last two years we've had a um, really tall clover Mm -hmm. so we've had deer bedding basically in the wide open right so but i mean as as long as i can kind of figure out them patterns and 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 like you said stay with a habitual um, pattern myself and um 
we can kind of correlate together the deer and I. <laughs> yeah. No, you absolutely are. And it takes a while. I mean, you're talking, it's going to take, you know, two or three years because what you don't, a lot of people don't realize is, you know, your, you, your fawns are raised a certain way by their mother. And then those fawns raise their fawns the same way their mother raised them. You know what I mean? And it, it kind mm-hmm. of goes down. So you really, you know, like I can tell you on, on our farms, really year five was the was the really like oh my gosh this this process works great but mm-hmm. it takes a while for those old does that have been on the old old plan you know and they're skittish and they're crazy and the old bucks and all that you know once they kind of fade out and this younger class gets up and then then they start getting into that four you know four-year-old range um that's when you can really see like okay this this fawn has been on my farm and has seen this program since the time he was a fawn so at the time he's four he understands the program 100 percent and feels safe mm-hmm. and that's kind of you know so it takes some time to really you're i don't know how much you're really changing the thought process of the existing deer on your farm as much as you're changing the thought process of the younger deer coming up in that generation mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense actually and i you know I and that's the thing that's the thing we talk about a lot. Like I have a kind of out of the box theory with not shooting does. Like I don't shoot does on my farms. I, I, I have neighbors who shoot does. Um, and I don't really have an issue with having too many does on my farm. I've never gone out and been like, man, I saw too many deer tonight and I don't have deer dying from starvation and I'm able to feed them all year long mm-hmm. and give them supplemental feeding anyway. So I, you know, I got enough mouths to feed and it's, it's not a problem, but the reason I don't shoot does, the biggest reason is because you almost never shoot a doe that's alone. So mm-hmm. whether you shoot her in front of her babies or you shoot her in front of her doe herd, you know, her harem or whatever, all the other does that are with her, you're educating deer to negative things on that farm, negative interactions with you. The worst one I've ever heard is this, if it blows, it goes thing. Like all you're doing is confirming that she's yeah. blowing for a good reason. When you shoot a doe that blows, that you literally sense. are telling every other deer that she was blowing for the right reason. Yeah. Right? So now they're so, going to so, trust every time there's a blow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're just confirming that negative thing. But if she blows and blows and blows and nothing bad happens, then they're going to be like, oh, well, whatever. She blows all the time. Nothing happens. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, I mean, there's just that, I don't know where that, mental thought process came from Mm -hmm. but it doesn't i mean it's just not uh i don't know like i've tried i've done it you know i'm saying like we've done this over years and we've seen this i had dough i had a dough one time that was horrible and i she had to be like an eight-year-old dough she was horrible about picking you out in the tree but it got to a point after about two months that she'd come out in the plot and she'd pick you out and she'd stomp and she'd blow and she'd stomp and she'd blow and she'd stomp and she'd blow and she'd she'd run off the field. Nothing would leave with her because (laughs) nothing bad happened. They're used to it. They're like, yeah, she does does that. Mm. Yeah. This is just what she does. They'd all look at her, but then they just go back to eating, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's now if I were to shot that doe with all those deer out there and ran and cleared the whole field off, then every deer knows that was for a valuable reason. So mm-hmm. there's some other ways to look at it. You know, there's some, there's some information that I think, I think people take and they use 
in a, in a kind of every situation kind of thing. And that's just not the case with white-tailed deer. You know, every, every farm is different. Every, every area is different. And ultimately you have to try to think out of the box when you look at this stuff and think, Hey, you know, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try to be versatile. I'm going to try to be flexible. And I think ultimately that's the, the biggest downfall of hunters and the biggest mistake the hunters make and land managers make is not thinking out of the box and not being open to new ideas that may not be passed down from QDMA or, or from, you know, high finish ranches in Texas that mm-hmm. have nothing to do with my farm in central Missouri. You know exactly. what I mean? This is, yeah. Yeah. That's a cool way of look. You know, I've never thought of it like that at all. And to hear you, I mean, to hear you say it, it, it makes so much sense. And it's like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of simple, really. It, I mean, it's, really, it's super simple, but people, it's not out there. Like people mm-hmm. don't talk about it because it's so much cooler to be like, it blows, it goes, you know, like, yeah. no, don't. And I, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, I just cringe at it. Cause I'm like, man, if you just, if, if you just thought about it, you know what I mean? Just think yeah. about it. Like it just doesn't make sense. You're never going to kill out a deer that blow, you know what I mean? Like a, a, a deer that's on edge. I mean, these things, these are animals that something's tried to kill them their entire life. You're mm-hmm. never going to get one that, that sees danger and thinks, Oh, I better not blow or I'm going to die. Like there's not, there's, <laughs> they don't have that mentality. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, oh, I'm scared to blow. So I, you know, it just doesn't doesn't work like that. So you're never going to kill yeah, that out of the genetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's just a t- totally different concept. You know, you just don't hear about. But right, absolutely. And but it, maybe it, it it comes down to the fact you know, like people want to you know give them an ex- give themselves an excuse to do it. You absolutely. Know? I yeah. mean, I, they want to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll be the first one to play in, or to admit that I play into the deal of, yeah, you know, good deer management. I'm going to harvest as many does as I can. You know, we, right. and I don't know, in our area, you know, um, of our land and, and the neighbor surrounding, maybe we have a population of 250 to 300 deer. Right. And maybe we have, I don't know, 30, 40 bucks and the rest would right. be does. I mean, if we go, if I go out on a normal um, bow hunt in September, I'm probably seeing 50 deer, five to 10 of them being bucks. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely, you know, in our area, we can get quite a few doe tags. So I definitely play into the, to the excuse of, you know, oh, it's good deer management. I have no clue, but I want to, you know, just use it as an excuse to be able to shoot more deer. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm sure that, that it kind of goes along the same the same pathways as that oh absolutely i th- i think like i said a lot of that doe management stuff came from high fence ranches in texas and mm-hmm. I, I understand it there right i mean i get it like you've got crazy habitat and no one's controlling does and you have so much you only have so much food and I, I mean, I understand it hundred percent, but I'm telling you that in central Missouri, it's not an issue and mm-hmm. it's not, I would challenge. And I always challenge, I get in debates all the time. If you ever watch my Instagram, somebody's always got something to say about something <laughs> I do, but 
<laughs> I always challenge guys. I'm like, tell me, give me one viable reason I should shoot does on my farm. And the two, the most, the two most common ones I get are food, which is not an issue for me. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the rut, right? I'm going to have a slow rut. My bucks aren't going to cruise because um, they've got does everywhere. They're just going to be in lockdown. Well, in Missouri, rifle season runs in the peak of my rut. That's when I lose track of every buck I've got, right? Same, I, I can't. Same with I, I can't. Yeah, I can't control where he goes. That's when neighbors are killing my bucks, just like I told you about. The neighbors are killing my bucks. Um, you know, my, I have bucks getting killed three miles away. So my thing is, if I have all the does, right, if I've got this just influx of does, and I have older does, my older does typically breed first. So what I've seen over this year, over this time frame, is I have a really good pre-rut. In fact, we've killed three now um, in the last two years. Really big, you know, five, six-year-old bucks from October 25th to November 3rd, because those does come in first. Those old does, right? So if I have the oldest does, obviously my does are going to come in first. Now, if that old doe comes in first, she breeds first. Obviously, she's going to have her fawn earlier. That fawn is going to reach the right weight in the right amount of daylight hours in the same year to where that fawn's going to come in late in the year, too. So I have a really good December rut, right? I have a really good December rut. Now, my peak rut is absolutely locked down central. I mean, it is like, I don't, you won't catch a buck cruising. If he cruises, he cruises for less than 12 hours and he's on another doe, but he also doesn't leave my, doesn't leave my farm very, very much. I'm not losing as many bucks now to my neighbors and I'm actually gaining bucks because I've got so many does in that all my bucks can't get with all of them. So now I've got neighbor's bucks, just like the buck I killed. I've never seen him before, but guess why he came to my farm? Because all the does on his farm are already bred up. So he came to mine because I still have does that aren't bred. And he Mm -hmm. comes in and locks down with one. So I'm bringing bucks in as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really a time frame that I'm fine with having all the – I mean, if you think about it, if you've got, say, just like your situation, you've got 30 30, 30 bucks – 250 deer total 30 30 bucks or so right mm-hmm. um if you kill the does say you kill half your does so you get it to that one to two ratio right yeah that's fine you can get it get it to your one to two ratio but after if the does aren't there that buck's going to cruise right through that farm and keep going Yep. Right. right I mean, he's just—he's going to go right to the neighbor. He's going to keep walking until he finds one. So, in a in an ideal situation, when you have a high fence and that buck can't leave your farm, and you're running clients, it absolutely makes sense to have those bucks up and walking around all over because they're yeah. going to stumble in front of a client. When I'm dealing with 200 acres of private ground, I don't want him wandering all over. <laughs> like yeah. I want him—I I want him on my farm to stay there. So that's, you know, that's the mentality with it. So it's so funny to me that guys were like, Oh, you know, I got to go with this, this strategy of, of, um, you know, kill my does. I got to get one to two ratio. No, you don't. Why wouldn't you want it? One to four. If he's locked down on your farm, he's locked. He's on your farm. Yeah. If he's not locked down on your farm, he knows where he's wandering to, you know? So that's really, to me, if you can feed them and you can support them with the food on your farm, 
there's no there's endless amount of how many does you should have in my opinion mm-hmm. so now you know, did you say how many acres is your place in missouri i've got a i've got quite a few uh, i've got two oh, big okay. ones one's one's a 680 one's a 720 and then everything else i have is like 200 and down i've got a couple like 30s um a lot of like 100 120 140s things like that and then so like in 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 the majority of these areas the six like the 600 acre ones and the like the mm-hmm. 200 acre ones are the neighbors around you are they um set up for for whitetail hunting as well like, are they running food plots and feeders and and stuff like that no uh-uh. okay no, it's usually, I mean, that's a lot of what I would call like weekend guys. Um, yep. Very few even bow hunt, really. A lot of rifle guys. I mean, our fences look like pumpkin patches um, <laughs> whenever, you know, rifle comes around. That's when, it's, that's the big push in Missouri. That's when everybody's out and there's trucks in every field. Um, and that's really, you know, that's when the pressure hits them, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of guys that just, I mean, some of them do little food plots, you know, um, but a lot of times it's, it's, you know, uh, recliner chairs and, uh, pop up $50 blinds from Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I mean, just asking cause, um, so we have neighbors on the one side of us, we get along real good. They have some of the most killer food plots every year and they own this mm-hmm. property just for hunting. And so Mm -hmm. the area that we have next to it, let's just say it's about 1200 acres. Their side is like 640 acres. Mm -hmm. So they have, you know, half of what we got, but they have all the food plots and I put up food plots every year too. But um, when it gets to end of November is usually when um dad gets to graze it because he's you know let me use this land for so long of the year um, yeah and then you know it's time to turn it over well so all these deer that you know that we've been sharing or i've had living on our side go over to the neighbors right and it seems like every year i'm losing more and more that are just saying well i'm gonna stay over here mm-hmm. um and like our shed seizing on our side of the fence sucks <laughs> yeah, right. he's got he's got the bedding and i mean he's got the food that lasts and right. that's something you know in the next couple of years i i plan to kind of change and um hopefully yeah. i fenced off food plots so i can have food for him all year long but i just kind of yeah. gonna see if you had any circumstances that were kind of close to that and, uh or what you would do in this circumstance I mean, I think overall you have to look at, it goes back to those guys are probably doing it right with no pressure. Mm-hmm. And oh, absolutely. ultimately, I mean, ultimately the cattle are, are causing pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where the, the real strain of things are. I mean, I think if you didn't have pressure coming in on your side of stuff, that, that probably wouldn't push the deer over, right? I mean, if you have them when the cattle aren't there and you mm-hmm. guys aren't going in and out checking cows and stuff like that, I mean, I think that's the X factor. Um, I don't know, you know, it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years, if you do get food in there with the cattle, if the deer will in, you know, ultimately to me, it sounds like the deer are choosing to not be around cattle or around mm-hmm. you guys checking cows and, and you know, I mean, the, just the, the intrusion of that is mm-hmm. ultimately what they're, they're choosing not to do. Cause it sounds like when the cows aren't there, you got them on both ends. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. So that's what I would I would say for the most part. Now, obviously, food's great, habitat's great, um, all that stuff's a, a very good thing. But I would try to capitalize on hunting that farm when those guys add pressure to their farm. Does that make sense? Yep. So you want to kind of you know kind of capitalize on I guess their intrusion because that's the uh, that's the thing that's going to really drive those deer out of that area because deer are like anybody else if you're walking down a road and you want to go to a bar but there's a bar that you know there's people that want to fight you and shoot you you're not going to go to that bar like absolutely you're going to go to the nicer bar that is you're you feel safe in i mean that's mm-hmm. the same way you know deer look at things like if i've got two two properties with the same amount of of offerings as far as food water cover okay cool which one am i going to have least pressure in mm-hmm. and then whatever that one is is typically where they're going to generate you know what i mean that's typically just what they're going to want to do because you got to remember these are animals that haven't survive because they live and take risk they're animals mm-hmm. that have survived because they get away from pressure whether it be i mean i've seen farms that coyotes do this too i've seen farms that literally have had a pack of coyotes on it that chase deer constantly and literally will run all the deer out of that farm onto another farm and those deer will not go onto that farm and we've gone in and i say this i'm going to stretch this into even predator hunting but we've gone in and shot that pack up and the farmer's calling us saying, Oh my God, now there's two times as many deer on the farm because of that. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just the same thing. I mean, they're just not going to tolerate their, I guess not going to tolerate their, their job is to survive. And mm-hmm. if your job's to survive, you're not going to take risk because there's yeah. nothing really worth that worth that reward to them. That makes sense. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I would see about, I would see about trying to, uh, you know, restrict the cattle to some parts of it. You know, obviously mm-hmm. food's going to be great, but food's not going to be a miracle worker for you because I think pressure's probably more of the problem than food is. Mm-hmm. You know, and like early season, like September, October, well, shoot, even I'd even say into into the rifle season in early November, the cattle aren't really around, them, mm-hmm. but. You know, when you're look when you're getting into the end of November, December, January, that's when they're going to be more intrusive, and that's when we it seems like we lose more most of them um, mm-hmm. to the neighbors. Yeah, if you could even get somewhere where you could feed, you know, or drop a around belt alfalfa. I know mm-hmm. my guys in Kansas. I mean, they feed they feed deer alfalfa and round bales. Yeah, those deer absolutely love it, and that's what they do late season. They'll take an alfalfa bell and just roll it off in a ditch. And a lot of the times, you know, they've got one guy specific has his whole draw where the, where the Creek is or what he calls a river. I would call the Creek where mm-hmm. that is, is fenced off from the cow. So he'll literally drive and just, um, use the forks of tractor, you know, the front end loader and pick the bale up and drop it over the fence and roll it right down into the timber on the Creek. Mm-hmm. And he has a, just a crazy amount of deer that winter on him just by doing that that's you know just outside of the pasture kind of thing yep that's a good a good point yep but well man i appreciate it um i i I originally was going to jump on and talk to you about turkeys i didn't think we were going to jump into the deal (laughs) into the deer conversation but man did that i learned a lot on that 
Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, we can we can talk turkeys again. Just let me know when. Absolutely, man. Well, I appreciate it, and um, we will definitely have to stay in contact with um, what what you're doing um, throughout yeah. the season because I think it'd be really cool to to ask you different questions. Um, if I would have known we were going to talk about deer, man, I would have had had to sit down and write down some more questions. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, but, we can do it again, man. Just let me know when we'll sit down and do it again absolutely and you said you'll be going to south dakota sometime this month correct yeah yeah end of next week i think i gotta go i'm gonna we got youth season this weekend here in missouri and then i'm gonna leave and go to kansas um for a couple days and then shoot up to um platt um south dakota and hunt with joe mcdougall and and be up there probably just for joe's pretty good about getting things put on strings mm-hmm. for the most part he's he's a great hunter and, and uh, i'd say i'll probably only be there a couple of days i'll probably just shoot content for a day and then we'll probably hunt mm-hmm. um another day or so but yeah i think Joe's one of those guys i there. go ahead oh sorry um i think i'm gonna head down there the end of the month okay. i believe yeah yeah joe's one of the guys i i started hunting with back you know 10, 12 years ago when he was with double K guide service out in Gregory. And, mm. uh, that was when he was just a guide for them before he really started doing his own thing. So I've known Joe for years and he's always one of those guys. I always love to sit down and talk to cause he's just a, he's like one, he's like a, like Dr. Doolittle. Like you, you go to his house <laughs> and he's got like deer and turkeys and rabbits and squirrels and everything like up eaten out of his hand. And so it's just crazy, but he's a really yeah, cool he's guy. A- so. I've I've gotten to know him a little bit throughout the last year, just chatting um, through text message, and I, that's what I've been getting from him. And just, and just a plethora of knowledge. Um, oh man, just yeah. a really good guy. Yeah, he's a hunter. He gets. I, I fear any deer he wants to. He decides to go <laughs> kill because he's a he's a machine man. It was that's a great job. Awesome. Yeah, I plan to have him on here soon too as well. So. Yeah, he'd be good. He's like I say, he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to hunting, especially big white tails out west. He's mm-hmm. he's just got it figured out out there. He knows. Heck yeah! Knows well, man, I uh, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, no problem. We will definitely have to do this again. Yep, just let me know when, man. It's a good time. Sounds good. Well, I will wish you good luck the next couple of weeks. Hopefully, you lay it out a bunch of turkeys. Yeah, hopefully I'll I'll let you know. I'll keep you in the loop. Sounds good, man. We'll stay safe and we'll talk soon. All right, we'll see you. Goodbye. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Make sure to check out our Instagram and Facebook pages, as well as our YouTube and Amazon Prime channels to catch up on the TV show. If there's any topics or guests you'd like to hear, make sure to reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. Catch us again next week, same time, same place.